Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to prepare pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the President and Associate Professor of Old Testament here. I'm joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, Associate Professor of New Testament and Academic Dean at RTS. Hey, Tommy. Hey, great to be here. Great to have you. Also joined by Dr. Paul Jean, lecturer in New Testament at RTS and the pastor at New City Presbyterian Church. Hey, Paul. Hey, Scott. It's good to be here. Great to have you. Also joined by Dr. Gray Sutanto, assistant professor of systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary here in D.C. Hey, Gray. It's Scott. Great to be here as always. And I'm joined by Dr. Peter Lee, associate professor of Old Testament and our dean of students here. Hey, Peter. Hey, Scott. Good to be with you again. It's good to have you all with, with me and with each other um, as we sit down and discuss rest today. We're going to talk about rest. And I have to admit, even gathering together here for these podcast recordings for me is a kind of rest. It's a chance to stop and to be with you, fine gent, and to not only have that pre-recording time where we just chat and uh, get things off our chest and joke around with each other, but just sit down and have some thoughtful conversation about issues that are facing us and facing our students here at RTS and facing um, really Christians in all different kinds of contexts, whether in ministry or in secular vocation. And so as we talk about the topic today, I want to be thinking both about sort of the theological groundwork for this idea of rest. Um, Where does this come from in the scriptures? How does it find expression in this relation of beliefs that we call systematic theology? And how do we practically apply that into our lives, both for ourselves and for our families. So I'd kind of like to start off with a, with a bigger picture. We might talk about you know, starting off with the, sort of the macrocosm view of rest. And let me start with you, Gray. How does rest find expression in our theological commitments? Thanks, Scott. I think rest is foundational for our understanding of theological anthropology because it really comes back down to the creator-creature distinction, the most basic facet of Christian theology, right? That we are not God, and God alone is of himself. God alone is necessary, self-existence. He enjoys aseity, and he's independent, right, and eternal. But we are fundamentally contingent, dependent creatures. And so we cannot be like God in the way that God is God, right? God is of himself, and hence he doesn't rest. He lacks nothing, and he is pure act, whereas we fundamentally need rest, and we need God, not only uh, for him to sustain us, but also we need to live by his word, right? So I think when we're thinking about a theology of the Sabbath, for example, we have to come back to nature. We have to come back to understanding of who we are as created beings, and we are created to have this cycle of work and rest, because as we rest, we're communicating to ourselves and to the world that it is God on which we depend, and that even that the work of our hands would come to nothing without God. And that ultimately it is not ourselves who make us enjoy the fruit of our labors, but it is God and God alone that brings our works to its fruition. I love that idea, the idea of how rest and, and work are kind of related. They can't work without rest. 
and you can't rest without having worked and that it's created this kind of um you know this dichotomy in our lives that is they're constantly feeding into the other and that's what i mean by them being reciprocal that's deeply a part of being human right is that you work unto rest and then you rest unto work you can't remove one or the other as we like to do so much here in the washington area we like to remove rest from the equation and and just work and pride ourselves in working and and realizing that there's something inhuman and dehumanizing about that and appreciating kind of what grace said about the aseity of god and you know god does not rest it's interesting and and gray i'd love to hear thoughts on this too because it's interesting that that pattern of work and rest is embedded not only in the you know, in the anthropological, but there is a theological component to that, that God rested on the seventh day. Now that rest is not the rest of weakness, not the rest of, of recuperating. Um, but it is, it is that it is a pattern that is set in creation. Any thoughts on that, Gray? How, how do we think about God resting on the seventh day? Yeah, you're right, Tommy. So God resting on the seventh day, right? It's not a rest which means a cessation of activity because if god were to cease acting one he would not really be god because god is pure act but secondly we would also cease to exist because we move and live and have our being in him we are completely dependent dependent upon his activity for us to continue to have our being and also for the rest of the world to continue to have its being right so god resting on the seventh day refers primarily to that movement from creation to preservation but it's also a royal rest. It's him actually sitting upon the heavenly throne, enjoying the work of his creation. He is now finished with his creating work. And so now he will also enjoy the fruition of the work of his hands. That's helpful. I love that language of royal rest because thinking kind of about in my own field and area, rest being not just something that characterizes part of our lives like okay i've got to go to sleep at night or okay you know it's sunday and so it is sabbath rest now that's super important i hope we talk about kind of those things but then rest also in addition to being kind of a daily component of life and an important one is an eschatological component so in hebrews you know we've got the rest and it's god's rest in hebrews 4 is the is the promise that exists for believers for what are you hoping? You are hoping in the midst of your struggle and your work and your wilderness wandering to enter into God's own rest. And, and I like that language of royal there, that the royal rest, a, a celebratory rest in which we all are able to participate at some future eschatological day. When we were contemplating rest, that was my immediate thought, just how quickly we're going to talk about the final rest, the Sabbath rest in, in the book of Hebrews. And, you know, that, that's probably more in, consistent with our own thought process. You know, we think historical, redemptively, biblical, theologically. And so when we were conceiving and thinking about rest, my immediate thought was Sabbath rest and how Adam had the opportunity to enter into the Sabbath rest of God yet failed. And thus we have now Christ as the second Adam through whom we now can have that Sabbath rest. That great heavenly rest is sort of the picture of the... Uh, eternal kingdom there. Yeah, so there's a kind of biblical, theological, and redemptive historical tethering of rest that we could talk about, right? There's rest in terms of God's works in nature, so that we human beings express our created dependence upon God by resting appropriately uh, after we work. 
but there's also rest in terms of the fall, right? Where we go to sleep and we cease from our labors. We're reminded that much of our labor sometimes is futile. Much of our labor uh, does not return to us much yield. And we also are reminded of our own deaths because of our sin. When we sleep, we cease consciousness in a way that recalls for us that all of human beings now would also return to the dust. But ultimately, of course, uh, as Peter and Tommy are saying, there is this eschatological rest that is still promised to those who are in Jesus Christ. The rest that Adam should have had, had he obeyed to God in the covenant of works. But it is the rest now that is offered to believers in who are in union with Christ. Because through him, we can also enter into that final rest where we will see God and enjoy him forever. So for the Christian listening at home and is thinking, well, wait a minute, is rest remembering how God created the heavens and the earth? Or is rest me looking forward to Jesus' return? Uh, how, how, do we, how do we pair that? How do we think about it? Which, which one is it? Uh, uh, yes. Like that slow and low across the plate enough. Was that okay? <laughs> yeah. uh, well, it's I. You know, there's a lot of uh, there's been a lot of debate over the, you know the nature of Sabbath and the the for, you know the fourth commandment. What does it mean to keep the Sabbath day? And it's a really interesting commandment because unlike some of the other commandments, it's grounded simultaneously or tethered to two realities. It's it's tethered on the one hand to this creation reality, both in terms of the way in which God created and he rested on the seventh day. And so it's part of the creation mandate in, in some, some ways, but then it's also and simultaneously tethered to these eschatological realities. It's not only a commandment, it's also a promise. It's a promise that's held out to particularly to believers as th- this is this is where the world is going god is not done yet the celestial city is coming into fruition christ has entered into uh, his kingdom and sits at the right hand and that means rest we're going to move from groaning and work and labor to to rest as our future so i i love that uh that language of the fourth commandment because it is both found you know grounded in that the foundational reality of creation, but also a promise to us that God will bring creation to its telos. Is this rest, is that same dynamic between looking back to creation and looking forward to an eschatological, a final end rest? Um, I know since theological theologians use the word eschatological, people sometimes glaze over, but we're just talking about this final complete rest is that dynamic between remembering the creation and looking forward to eschatological rest? Is that something that Adam would have experienced in the garden even before the fall? Would he have had that double dynamic? I, I don't know if we can speak of, um, you know, to what degree there is a, you know, a, a, a seven day pattern pre fall that Adam was required to follow, but it definitely seems that, you know, the condition in which Adam was doing his work as a quasi uh, priest king had that sabbatical goal. In other words, here is God in his Sabbath. Adam isn't quite there yet. In other words, the Sabbath is almost pointing to a greater state of reality for Adam. You know, he was created good, but yet here is Sabbath, something even 
greater, better, something that, you know, that he can gain by his merit. Perhaps a way of looking at it is not to wonder if, um, if there was a sabbatical pattern, so to speak, uh, that Adam would have followed pre-fall. But well, you know, what would the Sabbath have represented to Adam? For Adam, it would have represented that consummated uh, state of glory, that status of not able to sin, that idea that he would be perfected in a glorified humanity, something that he didn't have uh, mm-hmm. before his fall, that he had to merit and earn by his, by his ridding the garden of the threat of the serpent, of the rebellious element. There is his task. If he achieves it, and you know, that's the reason why the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was so central to his mandate. I mean, that essentially that dialogue in Genesis three is happening right there, right at the garden or not in the garden in, in the uh, presumably right in front of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because that is the state that is the probation. Here is the task. If Adam passes, he enters into the eternal Sabbath and he is consummated unto glory. He, had, he doesn't have that yet. Uh, but if he earns it, if he merits it by doing the kingdom task before him, then he's in, he enters into that. If he fails, then he is condemned and suffers covenant curse. We all, of course, know how uh, all of that uh, happens or you know what happens there. That does seem to me, uh, Tommy, I guess, as we talked a little bit about Hebrews, uh, you know, Genesis 2, verse 2, which uh, alludes to the Sabbath day that God blessed, that verse is almost rarely talked about, interestingly, throughout the entirety of Scripture. I mean, we have sabbatical echoes, using the good Richard Hayes phrase, and allusions that are constantly referring back to the concept of the Sabbath back in Genesis 2, or, you know, chapters 1 and 2. But the actual intertextual connection to that verse you only really find there in hebrews chapter 4 i think where he actually alludes to it and and interprets it not as a daily or weekly cycle he interprets it as that final rest that is awaiting for us the church the glorious rest the the consummated rest and uh so something that adam could have had but yet failed but yet we now have by uh, by faith in Christ. And this is sort of one reason why the concept of rest and why we talk about it, it seems to me so, so beneficial and so helpful, especially with all the chaos that's going around, uh, around us so much now is to be reminded that there's rest, there's going to be rest. Praise God, you know, that uh, we do the best we can as faithful believers, following our convictions as as Christians, to interact with the world, to encourage one another with all of the craziness that's going on. But there is rest yet to come. We work now, but there is rest, and it's uh, something that I look to quite a lot in recent days for for real comfort and and real hope. I think this is also, if I can maybe just throw in one one, one last little thing, something I've always appreciated about our confessional tradition on the Sabbath and the practice of the Sabbath, how, you know, the sabbatical pattern that we live by uh, reminding us of Christ who has come, but yet also pointing to that greater reality, and, and yet an encouragement to also work, you know, the one day, as, as both Gray and Scott were talking about earlier, is focused not just on the one day to rest, but to work on the previous six. That's sort of what I do. I, I try to work hard the six days so that I can really enjoy you know, the, the, the rest, the time of worship, the time to take a nap, quite frankly, and just sleep and, and just sort of, you know, let my mind just sort of do something mindless, so to speak. 
Well, and I think to go back to an earlier point you were making there, Peter, I mean, the idea that Adam has a bit of a hope set before him. And I think you find that implicitly in the previous episode, two of Genesis 1, where the man and the woman are called to fill the earth and subdue it. There's an implicit eschatology there as well, that the earth will be filled and subdued. And this idea, the reason why I think this is also practical, practical for Christians is that our hope is not, as I often hear people say, to return to the garden and kind of get back in that situation. Now, that is a good situation, but we are looking forward to the hope. God didn't stop the plan, right? We're still longing and yearning and thriving forward toward the hope that was set before our pre-fall parents as well, right? And that is the full righteousness of Christ imputed upon us. The heavens and the earth are filled with his glory. You know, the kind of sanctuaries expanded over the face of the earth. So there need not be a temple because God's presence fills the whole earth. The whole earth becomes temple. In other words, we're yearning for that end goal as well. It's not just some, hopefully one day we can get back to where we all started, right? We're moving towards this, this thing, this, this eschaton. Yeah. And, and it means that rest isn't some sort of like adjunct to my life. It's not something that's like happens just because I'm weak or just because I'm tired. It's not like a necessary evil. It's actually embedded into the fabric of creation and the consummation of creation when, when Christ returns. And, and we've been talking about Sabbath in this kind of theological category of a, a work rest pattern leading us on to glory but I think that viewpoint actually transforms the way I pursue my weekly rest, the actual Sabbath. Uh, my, my weekly Sabbath practice is informed by that. When, when I rest on Sunday, it is both a testament of the goodness of God's creation now, the, the, that, that, that creational idea that God created all things good, and we have a testament of that in the Sabbath, but then also it is a reminder that things are not done yet. And, you know, to, to Peter's point, it is a promise and a hope in the midst of, of the struggle. And that's what weekly Sabbath is. It is both um, resting in, in the goodness of, of God's creation and his providential care of the world, and also a recognition that things are going to be more glorious in, in the future. Yeah, it's constantly setting our story in the midst of the grand redemptive story. I'd be curious just to hear from all of you. We've been talking a lot about the biblical theological foundations of Sabbath rest and rest, right? Do you have any practical advice on how you pursue your own rest? So everyone says I'm the worst rester you can ever come across. Um, uh, I live in violation of the Sabbath. But um, I, do, I have a lot of thoughts on this topic. Uh, so one might be, I don't think rest is really possible without the gospel. Because unless you believe and feel that God has established peace with us through Christ, there's always this longing for, uh, there's always this restlessness in your heart. You know, the famous Augustine quote, which I'm not going to quote because it's always quoted. But um, you know, there's that uh, recently Hamilton, and a lot of people have written on this Broadway where Hamilton is never satisfied. You know, he's seeking his justification. 
And uh, this might sound very esoteric and so forth, but I think people that really know the gospel um, can attest to like always being at rest and uh, at the risk of sounding pious, but you all know me, so there's no risk involved there. Um, I always feel rested. Like even when I'm working, I always feel fine because um, it's sort of like my baby girl. She draws all these drawings for me. And, um, you know, they're not great, just to be honest. Like, it's not like they're amazing, but, you know, there's something which I, in which I delight in them because it comes from her. It comes from her with all her heart. And um, when we understand that God views us with delight because we are his children, and we don't have to obsess about um, our work being extraordinary, even when we do our best. Because if you really think about it, can we really impress God? If you really think that like, we can't impress God, really. Like, it's not like we come up with something and he's just blown away by it, you know. And I would say that once that clicks, there is a sense in which no matter how much you work, you always feel at rest because, you know, God delights in us. Um, as it is. And so for me, that's actually been so, um, that's actually created a lot of rest in my life. Um, so the gospel in that sense has been very practical. Uh, I think for me, what's more important when it comes to resting is not following, you might say, universal standards, but really knowing my body and my mind well. And so this sounds weird to a lot of people, but when I vacation, and I can't exercise, like if I'm without my gym, I actually feel less rested. So for me, whenever we vacation, I look for a place where I, I will have access to a gym. Because um, even though working out is, doesn't seem restful, but it actually is very restful for me, you know? And so I think that the suggestion I would give is for people to know their own bodies and their own minds well. And to take very seriously the uh, creator-creature distinction, I, I think that is actually foundational. But then to figure out like what rest looks like for you, you know. And so for some people, doing gardening is very restful, you know. Um, for others, it's exercising. Uh, still, others, it's writing. I think one last example I would give is sometimes people ask me like how I juggle being a professor and being a pastor at the same time. It's actually very restful. Because if I need a quote-unquote break from being a pastor, like if, if I can separate this, being a professor is very helpful and the same. So, yeah, those are my quick, well, those are long thoughts on wrestling. To, to piggyback on, on a little bit on that, one of the things that, that sparked for me, Paul, is just remembering how good patterns are. And you're talking about um, having a rhythm and then also thinking about how your body works. I mean, both of those things that we tend to overly spiritualize with rest or we can over spiritualize rest, but remembering that it's tied to who we are as, as bodies made by God and that God built us to think in terms of patterns. That's why we have that six, one pattern of rest in the week and living that way and making sure that we are thinking, you know, proactively about what our bodies are doing and, and patterns of, of our life is 
enormously helpful for pursuing rest. Uh, I I resonate with a lot of what you were saying. And just like when my week isn't uh, flowing well, I find it very hard to pursue rest. Yeah, something that I heard LeBron James doing is that he schedules his nap time. So he makes sure that he gets a certain number of hours where throughout the week he would have plenty of time to nap, especially before big games. And I think that actually it's a discipline to rest. Yes, I did say LeBron James, Peter. Yeah, uh, I don't know if King James is a good role model for the rest of us, Gray. <laughs> the point he was is... not just the napping. But <laughs> the no, point no. was just the napping. No, talk about a productive individual. Incredible. No, I, that's, that's great. And that's true. You can think that that's true of, of a lot of people in history. It's actually surprising how many people schedule in napping. Yeah. Part of their productivity. Yeah, and actually it requires so much discipline to actually get rest in. Because mm-hmm. actually if you could nap for 30 minutes, you can, you know, for example, grade six papers much more quickly than if you just try to push yourself with another cup of coffee. Then maybe it takes three hours to grade three papers, right? right. So it depends really on your state of mind. And I think it's so much discipline to just say, I can't do this effectively until I get a couple of minutes of closing my eyes. That's right. Yeah. Knowing your, and that's, you know, Paul mentioned knowing the, the, your mind and your body and your soul, and also just knowing your social context. I mean, there's all of these things that come into play as you look at rest and you've got to be aware of what that looks like in your life and how you can be both the, the best worker as so that you can follow on and be a, a successful rester as it were. And I think it's, it's important, particularly for people who are in ministry, because you have to think about this a little bit more deliberately, I think, because your Sunday is going to be a work day. And I know different pastors approach that in different ways. But you have to think then deliberately, say your Monday is going to be your day of rest or resting, you know, apart from worship. But say you're, you're, you're someone who takes that approach to it. You now have to be quite deliberate in how you're resting. Otherwise, it's really easy when everybody else is working that day to slide right into having that be a work day. And, and we all know how, how good we are at, at rationalizing and justifying slipping in work when we need to be resting. Some that, I think that, that idea of being aware of who you are and how your body and your mind and your soul works is so important. Yeah, well, you know, for, for me, maybe this story might be helpful. Um, when I was 11 years old, I heard this... Uh, preacher basically give this message he's basically saying that we should not sleep much because we will get to sleep a lot in heaven (laughs) he made this argument that um uh if you do the math let's say you sleep eight hours a day right then and he says if you factor in when you're a child you even sleep when you're an infant you sleep even more and sometimes when you're older you sleep even more so he says you're going to sleep between a third and a half of your life. And, and then he went on to say, so someday when we stand before God and we have to give an account for our lives, we're going to say we basically slept through half of life. And, you know, I heard that and I was very convicted by that uh, because it was terrible theology, you know, and it was, uh, so for years I had a low view of sleeping, but uh, it was after seminary when, you know, we, I came across this idea of creator creature distinction I began to have a very high view of sleep. And I realized like for me, sleep is an expression of faith that in the end, you know, God is the one who accomplishes good work. And it's an expression that I, um, 
I need rest because I'm not infinite, you know? And so for me, uh, we've already touched on this, like being intentional about our rest, but I'm actually very militant about sleeping eight hours a day. And um, uh, sometimes people, I don't know why, but people are in the impression that I sleep maybe four or five hours a day, but I definitely sleep eight hours a day. And then I've begun to incorporate a siesta. So if you guys ever see my office empty, just look under the table, I'm probably napping. <laughs> but uh, napping for 20 minutes a day, it really uh, does wonders. But I think that uh, we can over-spiritualize it um, in terms of stewarding life. You know, obviously we all share a very high view of stewarding life, but I would really encourage our listeners to really adopt a high view of uh, sleep. And it's interesting, a lot of secular studies, like Bill Gates, he approved this book, um, you know, on his, uh, on his uh, website, and it's all about sleeping. Last year, there was a bestseller, it's called Essentialism. And there's a great chapter on like sleeping as well. And so, you know, I think theologically, we can say we should sleep a lot because we're creatures, not, um, you know, not the creator. There's been so much in terms of like medical research on sleeping and the importance of it. And I, I, I was listening to someone recently, a doctor talking about that saying, you know, you can sleep when you're dead. And he says, and yeah, you're going to be dead a lot sooner if you don't sleep while you're alive. You know, like the importance of sleep, not just for health, but for productivity. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. And, and Paul, as you're telling that story, I, I got to admit, I instantly had a flash of George Costanza with his uh, mattress underneath his desk where he, where he would sleep throughout the day. I can attest that Paul is not uh, affecting that siesta policy throughout the day. He's quite a, product, quite a productive person as is compared to anybody who knows him. It's, it's kind of odd, but we do take pride in the fact that, you know, or, or there is at least this tendency among some, and I've certainly been guilty of this, taking pride in the fact that I don't get much sleep. I, I work too hard. I don't need rest. You know, I don't need to take a break. Uh, that, that, that kind of maybe Puritan work ethic that's gone a little bit overboard that, that, that we have in, in our culture. And it's, it's ironic because of course, one of the things that we know to be true is that Jesus slept and that in his humanness, he needed he needed rest, and that that was, as Paul put it, an expression of him entrusting himself to a faithful creator while doing good. And one of the, the vignettes in the gospel that I so appreciate, I think it's Luke 6, that where, where Jesus is, he's being harassed by the crowds, and he needs to get away. He needs to, he tries to remove himself so that he can spend time in prayer and spend time resting before his heavenly father and it's such a it's such a it's a quick moment but it's such an interesting one where we see jesus in his humanness pursuing something good which is rest uh he doesn't get it the crowds follow him but uh but it is a reminder of the goodness of rest and and not only as an expression of human frailty but as an expression of human faith and trust in in their creator there's a just a kind of riff off of that a little bit there's that passage in mark mark four where he pulls away and i'm I mean just i had to preach on this one time and, and he goes to sleep in the boat and then the storm comes 
And I think this is actually, this is significant for how we think about rest. The storm comes and he doesn't wake up. Okay. And, and we kind of thought through in this context and with those what's going on in Jesus' sleep. Of course, there's something that Mark thought was rhetorically valuable, which is even the fact that he's sleeping. And it could be, is this connecting it to Jonah? Because Jonah's down at the bottom of the boat when the storm rises up, and people have to go wake him up. Like with Jesus, they wake him up with a rhetorical question and all that kind of, there's, there's definitely these echoes, again, to use that phrase of the Jonah story. But there seems to be something else going on, too, where everyone is terrified by life's worries. You know, Don't you care that we are perishing, they ask him. And yet Jesus is at rest. And that might be getting at this kind of basic gospel comfort that we have that our God celebrates rest and he is sovereign and reigns over the heavens and the earth. And there is a sense in which only Christians can rest truly because we know it's not borrowed time. It's not me time, right? This is something that our Lord celebrates and gives to us. And we can truly rest with the full support of the creator God behind us. In a way, Christ, I know that's not what's going on in Mark, but in a way, Christ is kind of embodying that, right? He can rest with the full weight and the support of the creator God who will later stand up and say, peace be built to the storm, right? So he, he sees it rightly in context. He's not seeing it wrongly. He's seeing it rightly in context. Yeah, and I think that Christ is the example of the true human being, the ideal human being, right? I think a precondition for good physical sleep is good mental rest, that you are at rest mentally and emotionally and spiritually. And uh, what precludes you from having good sleep is actually anxiety and worry, right? Anxiety that things are not going your way, worry about the future, right? That's why disciples were so worried during the storm. And this is why Jesus was an example. Jesus was not worried. He was resting uh, emotionally. And hence, that's why he was able to sleep through that storm. This is all such great stuff. You guys, uh, you guys start sounded like real pastors. You're, <laughs> the, um, uh, and, and just to, uh, I guess, follow or just share what I was thinking in light of what you guys were just all sharing is I just can't help but to wonder, you know, the, the mental rest gray that you just sort of alluded to and the, and this, this, uh, uh, unusual pride that we take in just being so busy in our schedules, you know, Tommy, that you, that you were referring to. I can, I, I can't help but to wonder if there's intrinsic or implicit mind that we continually wrestle with as as people that we need to merit something, you know, from the Lord, and thus, you know, and and our identity then as as individuals is not on our identity as children of God, but it's our identity as a as a businessman or as a student or as whatever. And so if, if, if that's who we are and that's how we value ourselves and we have got to get, you know, a great GPA as a student, or we need to excel in our business enterprises or whatever that might be, because this is essentially where we are getting our, our sense of rest. Um, and it's a dangerous place to, to find rest because we'll never succeed well enough to, to be satisfied. So a lot of what we're, you guys are saying here is so, it's so pastorally wise and, and spiritually uplifting and beneficial. Thank you. We've had a lot of like pastoral interns and fellows come through our church, right? And um, this idea of resting, you realize it's actually very spiritual and deep. Like I remember there was this one student 
we, he just worked too hard. And so our church actually sent him on a vacation. We paid for his vacation. We went, uh, and he went, but even then he just could not, uh, like rest. And, you know, when it comes down to it, I think a lot of, uh, people do struggle with like their past. And what I mean by that is, let's say, um, you felt like your parents were never satisfied with you. So you, you have this thing always in your head that no matter how hard you work, it's not enough. And so even when you vacation, you just can't stop, you know? And so mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, I'm a huge believer that you got to actually stop and physically sleep and so forth. But it is true that until you really penetrate the heart with the gospel, right? Um, people, they're not going to rest. And, I think, um, you know, Scott, you, t- you talked on, you touched on this, but I think pastors really struggle with this because, you know, they're looking for success. And I do think that one of the reasons why many pastors burn out, yeah, they're working hard. And like Tommy said, like, like not sleeping is almost a badge of honor nowadays, but they're also working hard seeking their justification. And I think that a lot of pastors would actually enjoy more longevity if they just you know, rested in the deepest sense. And so this is a re- very relevant topic. Um, I think practically, this is why sabbatical is important. And I also think that practically when the pastors go on vacation, they should go on vacation for at least two weeks. The reason why I say that is it usually takes a week to just try to stop, right? You know, it's almost like an addiction to work. And then you almost begin to actually rest. Your body actually begins to slow down on like day 10. So if I, if I had to give practical advice, I would say, especially to pastors, if you're going to go on vacation, you should go on vacation for almost two weeks because it takes at least a week for you to slow down. That was, it reminds me of a story. My wife and I first realized that exact thing mm-hmm. um, back when we were, I was working on my and I was working at a local church and a, a kind family let us use their house at the beach for a week. And as the week was coming to an end, we realized that that week was needed to create the grounds in which we can now have a real big vacation. And, yeah. and we called the family and sweetly, they didn't have the house booked for the next week. And we were able to stay a second week. And we both looked at each other and realized that was actually the vacation. Yeah. You know, that was the actual rest that was so needed. I would, you know, as a, as a kind of to piggyback on that, Paul, I, I appreciate that kind of like from the, here's how a pastor can practically pursue rest. But to speak to churches for a moment, if you're a church that wants to take care of your pastor, realize that they are not, your pastor does not want to do that. Um, either because they feel the pressure of pastoral ministry or, or perhaps guilt at taking two whole weeks away from the church and, and fear that something is going to happen during that time. And churches, and especially sessions, if you're in a church that has a session, sessions have to be proactive about giving the pastor the mental, emotional freedom to do, to do that, uh, to, to, to take two weeks to, to pursue rest, to pursue the sabbatical. Uh, there's a, I don't know, there's something that happens in churches where 
the pastor going on vacation is taken sometimes by as like an insult by the congregation or a uh, or a you know a reluctantly granted by the congregation and i think congregations need to find ways to to encourage their pastors to pursue appropriate rest well tommy you know while we're talking about churches as a whole like um let me share with you something that was like probably unheard of. I, I don't know, maybe this might shock you guys, but so New City has been around for about um, 10 years, I think, or 11, I, I forget, something like that. And um, last year when our session met, uh, we wanted to talk about, well, what's our plan for this year, right? What do we wanna quote unquote do this year? And the resolution was really interesting. Um, across the board, we said, why don't we make this a year of rest? Uh, and we said, why don't we do nothing new? Like in the context is we were thinking about doing a third service. We were thinking about launching different initiatives, but we took a step back and we said, you know, for about 10 years, we've been pushing, you know, as a church plant, we moved four or five times. We had just closed a facility with RTSDC. The church had grown from like 30 people to just, you know, it's much bigger now. And, um, the session said, you know, we always talk about doing long-term ministry, right? Not burning out, but we can talk this way and not practice it. And so last year during our uh, annual vision meeting, we said to the church, this is going to be our year of rest. Now with COVID in one sense, it literally <laughs> shut down all our activities. But I think that it did do something for our church culturally, where we became okay with a year of not doing something and that that sounds almost outrageous from a organizational church perspective but i think what it did for our church culturally was say to everyone it's okay to slow down it's okay mm -hmm. to rest and what we said to the church was we need to rest for one year and um, we're going to rest this one year which meant we wouldn't do anything new like for example another a third service and once this year is done we'll push for another seven years and then we'll rest. And um, there, there was some pushback, but on the whole, I think that um, our church members appreciated what we were conveying and also instilling from a cultural perspective. Fascinating, that's, that's, that's super interesting. Uh, reading kind of the rest on a, on, on a full ecclesiological level, that's, that's really interesting. Tommy, I definitely appreciate what you were saying earlier. The idea of allowing pastors to rest is not just a, a pastoral virtue. It has to be an entire congregational virtue. The church as a whole needs to embrace that idea so that when their pastors do rest, they're not, they're, there is no accusations of laziness or, or anything like that, that this is actually something encouraged by the leadership structure uh, of the church because they know the strain that, that pastors are. And you guys know this as well as I do. It's, it's not just, you know, we, we are, or they, real pastors like Paul are, are constantly on call 24 hours a day. You can get an emergency phone call at any time of the night. Uh, you're working with more or less volunteers for the most part, not people that, you know, so you kind of have to work with uh, 
uh, with what you've got. You are juggling five different balls at the same time, plus the fact that they, and this is an unfortunate thing with pastors, and I know they do this, you know, they'll look at the size of their church compared to the church down the road and, and feel the pressure to have to grow their congregations numerically. They'll say qualitatively, not quantitatively, and I, I believe that pastors mean that, but at the same time, they, there is this sort of ways that they gain the success of their ministry by the, the by the three B's of ministry, you know, the bodies, the budget, the building, and if you have that, then you know you're doing well, when, uh, and that's not always the case. They need to know how to rest. They need to know how to measure success. You know, we they need to know how to take their duties responsibly in a way that is uh, consistent with their own gift mix and not uh, see it, uh, it can comparatively to what they might see uh, with others. And that, that's a really hard thing. And the stress and the pressure to think otherwise is, is a real temptation. And so the, the idea of being able to have a mental rest sort of something that we've talked about is, is, is something that is so important to, uh, to instill it in, in, in pastors and uh, something that uh, it, it's something that he can't do alone. It's something that the entire church really needs to support and, and embrace as a good thing, as a congregation, as a church. This is a good thing that we need, uh, that we do and need to be able to do, to instill and pray for uh, and encourage our, our, uh, these men who the Lord has provided for, for his church. And it's, it's humanizing as we started off in this discussion, Peter. I think that's so important that the pastor role models the humanizing effect of rest, right? And the humanizing effect of stopping and ceasing and trusting in the Lord, right? I mean, part of the work of rest is an act of faith and trust. And embodying that not only in just their daily you know, or their weekly schedule, you know, as we see articulated in Genesis and in Deuteronomy and you know, the Ten Commandments, uh, but also in this kind of like, this is a part of being human, as we've been talking about, even in a daily way, recognizing the need for looking for it collectively, um, you know, realizing there needs to be seasons of rest. It's interesting to me, you know, as you talk about the need for rest when when the author of Leviticus and Chronicles talks about exile, the reason for exile is that the land needed rest because it hadn't been given its its rest years so that the soil could rejuvenate and blown through that. And so exile in a way, leaving the ground fallow for that 70 years is giving the land rest. And what's interesting to me about that is that in this case, we have rest that is ignored. The call to rest is disobeyed and the Lord therefore enforces the rest. And, and I, I think that should be a word of comfort to us that it's good to rest. God takes it very seriously and also one of conviction, right? There's a conviction and a comfort in it. And the conviction is beware lest the Lord force rest on you. Okay, take it in faith. Don't wait and take it. But, uh, kind of enforced upon you by experience. I think that's that's the thing that happens that we need to be aware of. That the Lord is requiring this of us, and it needs to be a part of our whole cycle of life as humans. It's how we're made to be. 
Well, I think in terms of our students, I mean, this applies in the sense that they're also called to rest and they may think, wait, no, I'm at seminary. I don't get to rest. And, and no, you're called to rest. And I tell my students at the beginning of the semester, I expect you to work hard. I expect you to do all the assignments um, in this class. And yet I also realize that you have a life that is families. You have things that are drawing your attentions and don't let don't let your rest fall by the wayside. Take, take the lesser grade you need to. Um, you know, turn in the paper that's not quite as well completed as you would like it to be. If it's between that and rest, okay, make sure you're observing rest and getting because you're not going to survive seminary, or you're going to create bad habits that will make it create the opportunity for you not to survive ministry or you've given up and sacrificed rest in your you seminary know, prep. I have to say, uh, and I have had, you know, an opportunity to sit in almost all of your classes um, and from a student standpoint, now granted, you know, writing papers, researching, all right, that work, that takes work and, and it's a skill that you learn, need to learn how to do. But, but I, I must confess that I, I love sitting in our classes. Uh, to me, it's like just a, an extension of the ministry of the word to hear it from, you know, trained professionals who were, who were one-time pastors <laughs> and to hear the word then taught in a way that's not just uh, instructive, but almost proclamational. I don't know. I guess I want to be sympathetic to students who wrestle with spiritual growth during seminary, but, but I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I just think that a lot of what we offer and what we, we, what I hear in our classes are just spiritually enriching and and uh and gives me moments of just rejoicing and praising god for his work of redemption because that's what that's basically all we talk about almost and and that's the way it should be and uh and so i guess i'd encourage students to try to learn how to do that not not just take what is given in the classroom as just cognitive and and cerebral i mean it is that it is heavily intellectual it's very rigorous and it's got to be but at the same time, it really is truths that um, uh, minister to us as our our identity as as children of God, as His people, uh, and of course a celebration of who the Lord is and what He has done for us, and 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 to just you know kind of study, take notes, and worship all at the same time. You know. Well, Peter, let me uh, share something that you sort of touched on before. And uh, <laughs> I speak about this with hesitation because, well, I, I think you guys will sort of get why. When we first started our church plant, uh, we did have a culture where you can call Pastor Paul, you can call the pastors anytime you want and anytime you need, like you're always on call, right? But I think some, I don't know when or how it happened, but we have a culture now where we're like, if it can wait, then wait. <laughs> it's like, you know, that rule of like before you buy something that you think you really need, just wait 24 hours, right? And, um, and I know it sounds like cold, right? But I think we realize, especially when we have crises at night, sometimes the best thing to do is just sleep. And then the next day you realize it's actually not that bad, right? And so there's this running joke at my church where everyone knows I basically go to bed at 8.30, right? And um, they've actually come to respect it. And if they really need to access me, there is a way to. 
but outside of that, um, you know, it's interesting, all these emergencies we had early on when I was always available, they have suddenly disappeared. And I don't know how that worked out other than uh, just creating, like really instilling this idea, hey, we want to do long-term ministry, uh, but we're finite creatures. And so we need to be able to rest. And so one of the things that we talk about a lot at New City is creating more sustainable models of ministry, you know. And so um, I do appreciate the fact that our session uh, has been very supportive of creating a culture where we don't actually treat the pastoral staff as people who are available 24-7. Now, there are, again, like very few, like I, I think in a single year, there might be three to five exceptions. Like let's say there's a domestic uh, violence or abuse in the hand or someone is about to pass away. There are, there are exceptions, but on the whole, it's been very good to almost convey, hey, actually the pastoral staff is not available 24 seven. And I know that sounds so iconoclastic, like, you know, but <laughs> the reason why I wanted to share this is because I think that, uh, you know, our students that listen, they, I don't want them to go in with, like, it's very similar to what Tommy had said. Like, it's almost like this badge of honor. If you don't sleep, then that's like a badge of honor. I think for pastors, like, there has to be this idea that you're available 24-7 and it's perpetuated. But having healthy boundaries where, you know, you say, no, this is my time to rest and you can't actually contact me at this hour. And if you really need to contact me, contact someone on the session or things like that. So um, that that's really been what it is at New City. And in one sense, it makes the pastoral staff look less heroic, honestly, but we don't care because uh, we realize that for us to have a more healthy, like, you know, staff, we do need to have these boundaries that allow them to rest. And so uh, that's something we've um, really inculcated at New City. And it's worked out well. Again, it's strange that all of a sudden the number of emergencies has dropped exponentially. So, you know, I don't really know how that works out, but that's what's happened at New City. Hey, Paul, what do you do? Do you, do you have somebody who is on call in case something, I mean, like a mm-hmm. high school kid is in the, goes to the hospital or something? Sorry, did you say that? I don't know if I missed it when you were saying it. Yeah, we do. I mean, um, I'm just thinking about the pastors who are listening to this and they're thinking, okay, so what do I do for the actual emergency? So let's say someone tries to get in touch with me, but they can't, but my wife sleeps at 11. So they could call my wife and she could wake me up, but everyone knows waking me up is usually not a good idea. (laughs) So, (laughs) So they hesitate on that. Or, you know, the other thing is, you know, at Presbyterian churches, we always say we're session-led. And mm-hmm. so what that means is that uh, if you can't get in touch with Pastor Paul, like, it's not a big deal. Oh, you yeah. have other elders who are available. And so we've really moved away from a pastor-centric model where yeah. they can, I mean, it's very unlikely. And then we have, a, you know, about five people on pastoral staff, three uh, ruling elders, four deacons. The chances of not you know, getting through to one of them are so low that it's, it hasn't been an issue. But again, it always goes back to culture. If you create a culture where you make the pastor, the senior pastor indispensable, and he is the go-to person, 
that that's so unhealthy and so that that's what we do at new city just if you really have to get in touch with me for some reason which is rarely the case now because we have great elders mm-hmm. um you could call my wife right but then even then i think that it creates this like um i don't want to say checkpoint but you really have to think this through like is this such an emergency that i need to call pastor paul's wife i can't call any of the elders and so that's why i think again the number of emergencies has actually dropped a lot and um i really do want to encourage pastors to think about this because if you are trying to make yourself indispensable that you always have to be the go person it goes back to what we've been talking about all along like it might be because you're finding your justification in wanting to be needed that's a very real struggle for many pastors right and i would say it, in turn you're never going to be able to rest well yeah. this is why i think that um like creating boundaries where you're less heroic less indispensable is a outworking of everything we've been talking about regarding sabbatical or rest i'm not sure why the rest of us even bother talking we should just let paul take it no no tell me now you're <laughs> Now you're making fun of me again. It makes me sad, Tom. <laughs> that was great stuff. I would the, dynamic, like the dynamic between our New Testament professors is a bit odd. I'm just going to say. Go ahead. Go, go ahead. I, I, I mean, I, no, I thought that was great. I wish somebody had, had kind of told me that early on in ministry. Pursuing rest requires... For, for pastors requires not just a personal commitment, but a commitment by the church. And the culture is going to drive that as much as your own personal uh, pursuit. Yeah. And let's end on that. I appreciate hearing your perspectives just because I get a chance to hear about you personally, but also because you're in your experience and uh, your insight into God's word. And it's always a gift to me. And I look forward to talking again next week. Uh, we also look forward to being with you all uh, listeners. And uh, we let us encourage you, by the way, to go online and, and please provide any honest reviews. You can please like the podcast, rate it, subscribe to it. Um, we've been super excited to see how many people far and wide are coming in and listening to this. I've had people reach out to me personally um, who are not in the typical RTS circles. And so we want to be able to minister to you all uh, in this podcast as well. So please be deliberate and uh, rate, review, and subscribe for us. Thank you. Until then, next week. Amen. You had me at Leviticus. <laughs> you complete me. We we are all getting siesta gear under our desks now, right, Scott? Is that? Uh huh. Yeah, right. I wonder if we can say anything for students and how they can rest with their kind of study cycles and. It doesn't apply to. You're right. They can't rest. You're right. <laughs>